0: Hi, I'm Mike Dilke, and you're listening to the Relaxed Back UK Show. a show that explores all kinds of health topics relevant to you, your family and your friends. Each week I talk to expert guests from a range of backgrounds to inform and entertain you. So please do join the Relaxed Back UK family and stay tuned. Hi and thank you for joining me on the Relaxed Back UK Show. Now, is your house nice and calm and welcoming? perhaps you don't look forward to coming home. Neuroscientist TJ Power has some ideas on how to make everything a little calmer, a little more calm and pleasant.
1: And they're making both breakfast and dinner a real family event. And I think it's something that's super important. It's very easy to kind of eat breakfast on the go whilst you're scrolling your phone and then run out the house. But humans need these kind of practices of good connection in the morning, good connection in the evening in order to bond up.
0: Then we talk about what I suspect is a rather unknown health problem.
2: You can see the sort of, you know, tw- is it £22.6 billion it's costing the, the NHS, projected to cost another £4 billion in the next sort of 10 years or so. So, yeah, a really, really big problem, um, not only for the health of, you know, our, our population, but the, the financial aspects on the NHS.
0: anne Alan Fazakli is a nurse, and she explains... The problem of disease-related malnutrition in the UK, which is a lot more of a problem than you might imagine. So please do keep listening for an important show. Thank you. This
1: show is
0: cool! So my first guest today is TJ Power. He's a neuroscientist. My first question was nothing to do with neuroscience. It's actually whether I could just call him TJ.
1: You can. That's been my well, name I have to my whole call life. You Mr. Power. <laughs> well, Mr. Power would be kind of cool, but let's go. Right. Two, we'll, we'll,
0: we'll, we'll come on to that a bit, a bit later. <laughs> I, want, I want to mention that as well. But anyway, most thoughts on neuroscientists, I can imagine, most people's thoughts on neuroscientists, I can imagine, are essentially from Big Bang Theory and Sheldon Cooper's girlfriend, Amy Farrah Fowler. So the first question has got to be really, what do neuroscientists actually do and how do you become one?
1: Yeah, I've basically spent a lot of time researching the brain. I've decided to specifically focus on the brain chemicals. So we're looking at things like dopamine and oxytocin, and we'll come on to more as our conversation goes. And the journey to becoming one was basically studying psychology at university and then mastering and focusing on neuroscience. I then was fortunate at Exeter University to become a lecturer and start researching This whole world of neuroscience and then over the last few years have gone deeper and deeper into it, both researching, but also teaching in the space and companies and
0: schools and things like that. Okay, so do you do 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 research actually now, you know, do you slice open brains and get the microscope out and measure the dopamine levels or this kind of stuff? Interesting. I'm involved in things
1: like that. I've gone down slightly more the behavioral route of analyzing how people are spending their time and the knock-on impact this is having on the brain chemicals. We uh, have just recently looked at a study at Durham University, which, for example, is looking at how TikTok is affecting teenage girls' uh, mental health, their self-esteem, their attention spans, things like that. So we've gone a little bit more down that route. Slicing brains would be cool as well, but I'm trying to create really good behavioral advice for people.
0: Now, I, actually, I've, I've got to say that seems to me like a, an extremely important thing just now. Mm-hmm. Um, now. I know you're not here to chat about that specifically, but we might have to keep in touch and come back because I think that's an important topic. I would definitely like to uh, explore that a bit more. Um, so, OK, so you're you're you are a scientist. I've just got to ask you the name. It's a bit more of a stage name than a serious academic name. What's going on there?
1: I actually have been called TJ Power my whole life. That's what my parents decided. I It stands for Thomas Jefferson Power. And they liked those two names, Thomas and Jefferson. It's like names from previous family. And then when I was born, they went with TJ. So that's what I've been living with all my life. It is a great name, I have to say. Uh, I'm somewhat <laughs> jealous. <laughs> I think they had some uh, preempts that I was going to end up doing media stuff. And they gave me a useful name for it. <laughs>
0: Yeah. All right. So the, you've explained a little bit about some of the neuroscience you, you are looking at and this whole social media thing. But mm-hmm. is there a specific um, neuroscience type question that you're currently thinking about, you know, the the, the, the purpose of this, um, this show, really?
1: Yeah, so I've been working with DFS. They've been doing some really cool research, specifically on our home environments. As a neuroscientist, I really do believe that the way in which we set up our home is really important. And they found in their studies that almost half of us in the UK are spending all of our free time in our homes in January, which isn't that surprising given it's cold and pretty dark outside. And then 72% of us are wanting to make our home a more relaxed and peaceful Uh, Atmosphere, and we've been looking at the kind of actions people can take to get their environment to be conducive to getting them into peaceful states.
0: All right, so yeah, I I looked at the 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 same news release that came out, and I suppose the converse of the first statistic you just said is that there's only about 33% say their home makes them feel relaxed. Mm. Now, I've got to say, or ask really, is that more of a function of other people in the home? rather than the (laughs) physical space.
1: I think it's a mixture. Of course, other people are going to have an impact, but actually making the home a more peaceful environment is conducive to making those relationships potentially a little bit better as well. Like if everyone is in quite a chilled state mentally, maybe things might be a little bit more peaceful. And there's certain actions you can take to make that environment happen.
0: Yeah, no, I I can see that both will feed on each other. Um, For sure. (laughs) definitely and actually the actual not so much the layout of the space which would be important but how much space there is i I can Mm. imagine might be quite vital
1: definitely i mean if you're looking at relationships for example often clutter in our environment isn't good for our stress often if our environment is very cluttered it can almost be reflected by a more messy mind as well and if uh mum was looking after her family and her kids and the kids rooms were really messy and she was like struggling to keep everything organized that could create some challenging relationship dynamics so something as simple as creating a moment on a saturday morning where as a team you're going to declutter the environment that's something that's extremely good for dopamine which is this reward-based chemical and could almost make the environment a better place to be in
0: okay that's interesting because i have to say when i go and visit people's houses and it's like pristine there's mm. no clutter. I'm very suspicious. <laughs> I think, what were they doing just before I arrived? You know, like, where's the newspaper? Or, okay, that's a bit old fashioned. Where's the book? You know, what were they doing? Surely they weren't just sitting or standing, actually, because the cushions are plumped, waiting for me to arrive. Because, you know, people are not that important. People don't work like that. I don't know what I, I think if it's a place of, of too pristine uh, and Everything's too in order. I get worried. Do you? I, I can yeah, see. I can see your office behind you. It looks pretty, pretty tiny. Yeah, I mean, th- this fact inv- this room. I do keep
1: tidy, but I don't like have lots of clutter in this room. This is a room for just filming and and interviews and stuff like that. The rest of my house is like a nice moderate level of organization, and I think it's good to have it decluttered. At the same time, I think it's important to have blankets around the house and have it as like a cozy environment as well especially in the winter so you don't want it too pristine and proper you want like a balanced level yeah, you've got to live in it i mean yeah you've got to live in it you've got to feel relaxed in it you don't want to yeah. feel like you can't chill in your own home
0: yeah all right so we're, we're, we're talking about the, uh, the the people and the layout and obviously there's an, an interaction there mm-hmm. um and i think most people do like to have some company i mean you yeah you know, you get some that live on their own and, and like it. Um, But we're talking really about a house full of people just now, I think. So, you know, scientifically speaking, what's the difference between someone who likes to live on their own and someone who likes the noise of the family? Yeah, I think
1: humans vary massively in terms of introversion and extroversion. Some people get a lot of energy off being in the company of people. Some people like creating like a more peaceful environment where they spend time on their own most people sit like in the middle of there. like I love being around people but I do like time to myself as well and neuroscientifically you just want an environment that is conducive to connection so whether you live on your own and sometimes you have people come around and it's less frequent connection or you're living with people you want an environment in your home that's set up in a way that gets people to communicate with one another some research that I'm always super interested in is in general, youth mental health, I work in a lot of colleges and schools and deliver training in them. And I spend a lot of time studying like what is impacting kids' mental health. And mm-hmm. in the Scandinavian countries, they're doing a much better job of youth mental health than the rest of Europe. And one of the big things they have is in their home environments, whether it's their kitchen or their lounge, they're setting them up in ways that facilitate good quality connection, like they're having round tables in the kitchen or the dining room. And they're making both breakfast and dinner a real family event. And I think it's something that's super important. It's very easy to kind of eat breakfast on the go whilst you're scrolling your phone and then run out the house. But humans need these kind of practices of good connection in the morning, good connection in the evening in order to bond up.
0: Yeah. No. Okay. So, I mean, I've I've got two children, one 18 and one nearly 14. And I can definitely relate to that, like the importance Mm -hmm. of that, but also actually how difficult it can be to do. Um, For sure. We fail quite often on breakfast because you know everyone's off doing their stuff. Both me and my wife work, so uh, I shall put that to one side, make a mental note, and try to make more of a thing. Of- and if it, if you breakfast. just try and set yourself that
1: it doesn't need to be, a, it's not like you need to find forty minutes or half an hour in the morning to have breakfast together. I appreciate time is precious, but if you get into a bit of a routine where it's like. Every morning at 7 30, whatever the time is for your schedule, every morning at 7 30, we're gonna spend 10 minutes sitting around this table. Someone might have a cup of tea, someone might have like a bowl of porridge, whatever it may be. But if you build it into like a bit of structure in the morning, it is very good. And then the same in the evening. Humans need these connection moments. They're very important. Yeah.
0: Okay. So we we've spoken a bit about habits and and the people. And we, yeah. we have touched on the like the physical environment. But what do you think the greatest physical sort of effect is I'm, I'm thinking the thing that i think probably affects me the most uh, but admittedly i'm a bit of an oddity uh, is light and light levels yeah light is is, you come across
1: light is huge my whole area area of study is what's called evolutionary neuroscience which is the study of the brain over time effectively and we as humans spent three hundred thousand years living outside in the forest as tribes and then relatively t- speaking, time you're talking trained.
0: evolutionary time not the lifetime of one human
1: not the lifetime of one human the lifetime of our species as a okay. whole and humans have been in this kind of physical form that we're in right now for around 300 000 years that's the estimation and the vast majority of that was a much more connected experience to the natural mode of operation and we have this thing in our system called the circadian rhythm. And that's like our body clock. Effectively, we have this internal body clock and it's completely dictated by light. And if, for example, you feel much more peaceful when you create nice dim lighting in the evenings, that's because it has an impact on this circadian rhythm so that your body feels like it's operating on more natural cycles. So, yeah, as you say, lighting,
0: very, very key. All right. And um, low, low lighting, people tend to like low lighting. Ideally,
1: what you want is low lighting in the evening and
0: highlighting in the uh, morning. Okay. And uh, when you said high, you looked up. So, are you talking about how bright the light source is or actually where it is in the room?
1: You actually want some lights that are literally above your eyes because how our brain operates is it knows that the morning, the light is going to be above our eyes. And then in the evenings, it's going to come more from the side. And light that comes from above our eyes energizes our system in a more efficient way. So, if you can have overhead lighting in the mornings, side lighting in the evenings it's going to lead to a much more natural cycle of your energy system
0: another thing that crops up certainly in our house uh temperature interesting yeah because i i like things a lot cooler than many other people and after 30 or so years of marriage my wife was slowly coming around to my temperature (laughs) but generally speaking temperature i can imagine It could be an issue for um, keeping things harmonious and calm.
1: Yeah, temperature is an interesting one, especially when you look into the world of sleep specifically. So you obviously want to not be freezing cold in your house. That's not going to be healthy for you to be really cold. You want just like a nice medium warm temperature. But then in your bedroom, you really do want a cool environment. Our body actually reduces by a couple degrees Celsius when it falls asleep and it can't fall asleep unless it reduces in by a couple degrees and that's just an adaptation from 300,000 years of sleeping outside it's colder at night and our body knows that it needs to be cold when it falls asleep so in the winter months for example if you run the radiator all day and then your your bedroom is quite like a stuffy hot environment it's going to really negatively impact your sleep whereas if you could just for like 10 or 15 minutes whilst you're brushing your teeth open your window in your bedroom get some fresh cold air into it you actually fall asleep quicker
0: all right and if you haven't slept, you're going to be grumpy and grouchy. And that is not going to be a calm, <laughs> harmonious situation for everyone else, I would imagine. I agree. Let's if the mornings are
1: stressful, it's probably because of the evenings.
0: Yeah, yeah. What about colours? I mean, so mm. uh, I suppose people now often more go for whites and sort of shades of white. But a while ago, there was a fashion for lots of different colours yellows actually people used to think yellow was relaxing but what are your thoughts on colors for creating a nice harmonious atmosphere
1: yeah i mean keeping a line to, to the main message here mimicking nature is the absolute goal when it comes to well-being whenever we're looking at natural environments when we look at plants or trees or sunlight or whatever it may be it has a very positive effect they even find in research studies that When humans are in hospitals and they're recovering from illness, if you have a window that faces nature or you don't, you actually recover faster from illness if you can see nature, which is super interesting. And if in your home you can create a more natural environment where you have browns and greens and yellows and oranges that mimic the outdoor world, it has a very positive effect on our mind.
0: Really? So what, we should paint paint our walls green?
1: Yeah, you could have plants, you could have certain furniture that's like brown or an orangey or a maroony type colour. You could have some yellows. Obviously, the lighting can also help mimic that. But effectively, you want to bring as much of the outdoors inside as you can through paint. Through I furniture. can
0: see you're practising what you preach. I can see some plants behind
1: you. Yeah, and is, it really does have a massive impact. All of the home, all the environments in my home, I've tried to bring the outdoors in as much as I can with lights and images and all these kind of things. And it does help a lot.
0: Yeah. All right, and um, and then then we've got arranging a room. Sometimes I think the best way to get a nice, calm, harmonious uh, house-stroke living room is to bin the TV, just chuck it <laughs> out. Interesting. I
1: mean, that from like a mental health perspective, it would be great if humans weren't spending all their time watching TV. I do appreciate like that is one of the pleasures of the modern world is sitting and watching TV. But I do think. Having environments similar to what i mentioned about the dining room table, having environments like the, in the lounge whereby you are setting up the furniture so that sometimes you can just sit and chat to one another, maybe with some music on in the background and not always be all zoned in on the TV. That sort of thing is good. Humans need that time where you're actually chatting about how your day was going and all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, I agree. But ha- having said that, I I, um, I do like watching TV. Me uh, too. And our family <laughs> watch TV together. But what we've actually got the TV in a cupboard so we can okay. hide the TV because actually TVs themselves, I think are often just ugly. So mm. hide the damn thing if you don't want don't want to watch it.
1: Yeah, true. I've even seen some TVs now where they like when they're off, they turn into like a painting. So I think a lot of humans are wanting that experience of like having an environment that's social, but then also can have a TV on as well and creating like a multifunctional space like that in your lounge. It's a good idea.
0: Yeah. And This idea, well, you you touched on it talking earlier, arranging the furniture such Mm. that it's all in front of the TV, you know, you you can't do anything else but watch the TV when things are arranged a certain way, Um, seems a bit of a shame. It does,
1: and me and my, I live uh, with a housemate here and in the evening sometimes we just move the furniture a bit, put some music on and actually chat. And that's like almost now an unusual thing to do in our world. Like the given yeah. is just like Netflix on and just sit there and veg out. And the evenings where we do it, you hang out and we chat much more fun. So I think w- it's important. I
0: wouldn't tell anyone about that. If I were you, TJ, people will be thinking you're a bit odd.
1: <laughs> what? Chatting to people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Too unusual that. these days. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. So, um, We'll keep the TV, but we will uh, hide it potentially. So we can actually talk to each other occasionally. Um, Yeah. What else? So we have lighting. We have
1: mimicking a nice natural environment. We've got setting up the environment so you can actually see one another. I think uh, these really are the key messages. The other thing is just that decluttering idea and potentially a bit of a rearrange Our brain really loves novelty and we get dopamine hits off of novelty. So, some of you may have experienced, and you may have experienced yourself, whereby you kind of reorganize a room and it gives you like a boost. You're like, oh, it's so nice, this new space. And you walk into it and you've got, it's got like a new energy. And that process of the actual organization of it and then the novelty it creates is great for this dopamine system. When our dopamine levels are higher, we also feel much more motivated for life as well. So, yeah, a bit of a reorganization and reshift is a cool thing to do. Yeah, I, I like the
0: sound of that, actually, because um, I'm just thinking pretty much our front room has been the same way for the last 10 or 15 years. Mm. Uh, it can be hard to rearrange because, you know, not everyone's got a massive space. And if, if, you know, if you're limited by actually how much floor space there is, it can be quite hard to rearrange chairs and tables and all the rest of it.
1: It can. May, it, the thing is, it could be any room. It could be that your bedroom, like your bed could go against a different wall or where you sit and work. For example, if you work from home, you could try and make sure you're facing a window so that you have light coming into your eyes whilst you're working. It doesn't have to be some huge rearrange. It could just be a few subtle things.
0: Yeah. All right. In- interesting. So your it, it sounds like the, the, the summary is think about rearranging your your kind of space, uh, your sitting room in particular. Um, because it might give you a bit of a boost. For sure.
1: If you can rearrange it and focus on creating as much of a natural experience with the lighting, with the colours, that would be a, a good thing to do to kind of get you going in
0: 2024. Okay. If people are listening to this and thinking, yeah, you know what? I might, I might give that a go. Um, a good resource to just point them in the right direction or give them a few ideas. Can you suggest something?
1: Yeah, for sure. DFS have created this really cool thing called the Calm Hub on their website, and it goes through loads of easy, accessible ideas as to how you integrate these sort of things into your home. So checking that out could be a cool idea. Okay. All
0: right. Well, look, TJ, Mr. Power, thank you very much indeed uh, for chatting for a few minutes. Uh, it's been a pleasure.
1: Awesome. Thank you for having me. Have a great you day. very mate.
0: much. And Alan Fazakli is a nurse. And uh, she spoke to me about disease-related malnutrition. So my first question to her was, well, actually, is is this issue of disease-related malnutrition, it's hard to say, disease-related malnutrition, um, actually a big issue in the UK?
2: Yeah, it is. And what uh, the research that Danone and Future Health have done is highlighting disease-related malnutrition. So this is where someone has been diagnosed with a medical condition, for example, cancer or a respiratory problem, and the fact that that can then lead on to malnutrition. So what we're looking to do is try and sort of highlight the issue during Malnutrition Awareness Week um, and try and prevent it, you know, find ways of preventing people where we've already got medical problems um, from becoming malnourished.
0: Okay. So, so we're looking at people that are malnourished because they're ill rather than ill because of malnutrition. Is that right?
2: That's right. That That's what the research is focused on,
0: yeah. Right. Because actually that is two very different problems. So we're, we're looking at people that are malnourished because they're ill from something else in the first place. Is that right?
2: That's right. Yeah, that—that's what the the research is is you know focused okay. around.
0: And there are some pretty alarming statistics to sort of go go with that, aren't there?
2: Yeah, there is. Um, I mean, you can see the sort of you know, tw- is it twenty two point six billion pounds? It's costing the the NHS. Projected to cost another four billion in the next sort of ten years or so. So yeah, a really really big problem. Um, not only for the health of you know our, our population, but the the financial aspects on the NHS.
0: Yeah, and how how many people are we talking here that are actually undernourished because of some other issue?
2: I can't remember the exact figure, but it's it's twenty nine million. I want to say, but the, the, 20, re, it's, it's, it's published within the research the actual figure.
0: Twenty nine million sounds like a lot. I'm just through. I think okay. No, I'm just looking it up here. You you got the right figures, but the decimal point was in the wrong place.
2: All oh, right. Two, okay.
0: Two point <laughs> nine million.
2: Two point nine million. Okay. Right. Yeah. So.
0: So that's 2 they're saying 2.9, P, 2.9 million in England are malnourished due to some other health problem. And actually, yeah. there's another statistic here, which is kind of a, a bit of a headline one, but it's pretty scary. 50 people an hour admitted to hospital with um malnutrition.
2: Yeah, that's what it equates to. Yeah, that's what the research has shown, unfortunately. OK, so I mean... Uh, I, I've, I've got,
0: I suppose, some personal experience of, of this, but it's not not a, not a bad story. Uh, quite a while ago, my wife was admitted to hospital. Um, it was a long time ago. I can't even remember what it was for, actually. And they, they had a graph and they plotted her on the graph with height and weight and sort of nodded and said, you're all right. And I plotted myself on the graph as well. And I came right in the green, right in the good area. And so I I started to get pleased with myself, saying, you know, well, perhaps I'm not that fat after all. And the (laughs) nurses said, no, this is this is for us to make sure that you, you know, you're not malnourished and you won't waste away while we're looking after you. So I mean, it is something that um, hospitals look for, at least it was a few years ago
2: yeah and it still is so so what that what that nurse used that day is what we call a screening tool um so that's for us to try and easily identify where malnutrition might become a problem so what I think we're finding is although the, the screening is being done it's possible just not being followed up and followed through so someone who's in for a hospital for a lengthy period of time so we'll be looking for that patient to be screened more frequently so that then they the you know the risk of malnutrition is identified at an earlier
0: stage. So, ha, ha, I mean, that, well, that's that's good. But ha, has the situation got worse? I'm I'm just thinking because there's a real drive to not have people stay in hospital, but to get them home as quickly as they can, which is I would suggest a good thing. That there might be more people sort of falling through the cracks who are actually malnourished, but they've been sent home. And no one's really much the wiser.
2: Yeah, so I think like what, what we're trying to do here is is you know, the research has revealed a hidden epidemic. So you're right in the way that, that people are falling through the, the, the cracks, and we're trying to identify ways to stop that from happening.
0: Right. And so yeah, so what what are those things? How how do we get to grips with this problem?
2: So as I mentioned earlier, that this the screening tools that are that are you know and hospitals that are available um, just being used a little bit more effectively so that early ident- it's early identification and education I think are the two main things that we can do that aren't necessarily going to cost a lot of money but they can be very very effective at saving the NHS in the future.
0: Yeah. So so if, if someone is identified as being malnourished, malnourished at the start of a hospital stay you know, what, what happens? They're, they're, they're fed up, are they? They're given double helpings.
2: No, no, that that, that isn't as, as effective as you might think. So I think a lot of people have that preconception that, well, if you're malnourished, we'll just have to feed you more. Um, but that isn't the answer. The answer is, given that patient and that person the right nutrients to make sure that they can build up their, you know, the, their, their bodies in a better way way so yeah overfeeding someone and giving them double helpings of dessert is, isn't the answer it's it's more what can we do so you identify there might be a malnourishment problem you would then in most hospitals i'd imagine are all the same you would involve the dietitian at this point and then that person has got the specialist skills necessary to figure out what that individual patient needs in order to you know nourish them properly so that okay. we can aid um recovery So what sort of
0: um, health issues can lead to this uh, situation of of malnourishment? Is it it kind of a surprisingly wide range or is it sort of one or two that are the the main problems?
2: It's probably wider than you think, but I think probably the most common things that most people have heard of are things like cancer, because that can sort of suppress your appetite. You know, during treatment, you know, chemotherapy and radiotherapy can make you feel a little bit less hungry. Um, things like dementia, um, and the and the reason for that could be that you know the again the appetite suppressed. You know, forgetting for to eat maybe. Um, things like cystic fibrosis. So this is something that a child's been diagnosed with very early on. It's something they've lived with through all their entire life, but that does come with some digestion issues and things. And so you get some gastrointestinal problems with, although that's a respiratory condition, um, you get, you know, sort of some patients have gastrointestinal issues as well. So they need to be looked at and checked and weighed regularly. So probably... My, like loads load more conditions than you think but these are quite common ones respiratory cancer dementia that
0: right. type of thing and presumably if well cancer oh perhaps possibly cancer is is it is a good example to take yes. if you're having treatment for cancer but you're you know but you're malnourished presumably it's not going to work as well you know you, you've got to be fed Properly for any treatment to to work as well as it can do, I would have thought.
2: Yeah, you do that. That's the, the, one of the big key factors is that nutrition and healthcare is really really important because it does aid healing or you know the the sort of getting well process. And the research that was published from Future Health and Danone does stay on there that malnourished patients are in hospitals a lot longer than someone who isn't malnourished um so that, i think that evidence speaks for itself you know the nutrition is important in the recovery process of any any illness yeah so but in some
0: ways this this is you're going to get at people that are come to hospital or are going to stay in hospital But I, I can imagine that being a relatively small number of people compared to all those that are undergoing treatment you know for for something else and actually part of the major problem is that they're they're malnourished due to their disease or or whatever it might be and that you're not going to find them.
2: So yeah that's one of the things that was um, highlighted as a recommendation in the research that you know screening should be done in the community setting as well so someone's identified as having an illness that hasn't necessarily hospitalized them but Um. they are at risk of malnutrition we should be screening those patients as well and not wait until the point that they've been admitted to a hospital for a complication of their illness
0: yeah 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 so I guess finding those people and helping them that's the hard thing how how can that possibly happen
2: so what, one of the things that I'd like to see is sort of early education really for so if you've got someone who's diagnosed with if we're using cancer as an example um you know so educating the family the carers and the patient at an early stage that there's a potential that you know malnourishment might become an issue down the line and then giving them the tools to identify the, some of the symptoms that they might see so for example weight loss loss of appetite um, and at that point that patient themselves carer loved one can then seek help through a gp initially so you would go and express your concerns and then that's when the referral would be made to the relevant parties to then help that patient yeah so
0: the help that can then happen you know what what, what is it actually is it is it is it special food is it supplements or all of the above
2: so yeah it can involve all of the above so we have for example um a patient with anorexia let's say so so they would be giving them a meal plan and on the whole they, they would eat that orally so like in the same way that we, that we would eat and, and drink um, but then you might have someone who has a condition for example a stroke that's caused them to be unable to swallow Mm-hmm. So that patient would need to be fed artificially, which is what I do in my job. Um, and they would require some kind of feeding tube. So there's a few different ones available. Um, and that usually comes with um, a, a prescribed medical nutrition that's got all the nutrients that that patient is identified as needing.
0: OK, all right. So, so that can happen at their home, does it? Do you go and visit people at their home to help? Them we eat? do.
2: Yeah, yeah. One of our biggest things, uh, done on is to keep our patients at home as much as possible. Um, so we do a lot of the interventions in the in the patient's own home or or the care home, right. um, the place of residence. Yeah.
0: And and is this a, is this the sort of thing with a bit of help that other family members can can do, or even the person can do for themselves?
2: Yeah, we're, we're very, very up on empowering patients to, you know, maintain their own health. So, yeah, we do. We teach people how to use any of the equipment that they might need. Um, so that includes not just the patient, but also their carers, you know, children at school, for example, or, you know, hospices or any setting where someone who might be involved in your care from a multidisciplinary point of view is empowered to, to do that for you at home. Yeah.
0: Okay. So, if members of the public are thinking, goodness, you know, there's a member of their family or, you know, or a neighbor, whoever, and they're, they're, they're you know, a bit thinking they're a bit worried about them and they want to get a bit more information, find out if they should be helping, what they can do to help. Is there a kind of a useful resource, essentially a, a website with some good, simple information that they can uh, go to and get some help from?
2: I mean, the, the NHS website's got lots of information on malnutrition um, and it directs you on where to go if you feel that you've identified someone who may be at risk of it. Um, I would sort of say, if it was me speaking to someone, make the initial sort of concern to your GP because that's the person who can then refer you on to the special services that will help.
0: Right. Okay. Well, that's, that sounds like good advice for a a, a, a problem that is much larger than I I would have imagined. So Anne-Ellen, thank you very much indeed for chatting.
2: You're very welcome. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much to my guests on this week's show. And they were neuroscientist TJ Power and Alan Nurse talking about disease-related malnutrition. And of course, a big thank you to you for listening and have a healthy week until next week. Thanks for listening to the Relax Back UK show. Join me, Mike Dilk, again next week for more fascinating interviews and chat. If you're listening to the podcast version, please subscribe, like and share it with your family and friends. And have a healthy week. Until next week.